I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Somewhere in literature, I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. Okay, we are taping on Sunday afternoon, the day after the Nevada caucuses. We know now that Bernie Sanders won huge in Nevada. Not everything's counted, but he's projected to win the popular vote by a large margin. He won 46% of the delegates. According to the New York Times, he won with men and women, whites and Latinos, voters in all but the oldest age group, and those with college degrees and without. I saw an NBC News headline that said, of his coalition, it's not just bros. Did that surprise you, Sugi? No, not really, because I think it's a lot of what I'm hearing locally in the Twin Cities, just really strong support for Bernie. And I do think that the thing that would surprise me at this point would be if this interminable election season were over and the Democrats had their act together and won. Yes, well, that would be, over. be good. I would like that. Uh, we're going to get to the getting act together part, but um, you know, we planned this episode because Bernie is the front runner and has been for quite a while, as these results uh, you know make clear. And it's also clear that a lot of Democrats and media pundits, including James Carville and Chris Matthews, who sort of melted down about Bernie on TV last night, don't know what to make of him. So this is going to be our Bernie episode. I don't know about you, but I voted for Clinton in 2016, in part because I thought she was better on issues of race and gender, and because I didn't take Sanders' candidacy seriously. So we decided that we wanted to go back and do a better job of taking Sanders seriously, and especially given that it is Black History Month, taking a serious look at the way Sanders and democratic socialism appeal to voters of color and women in 2020. Later in the episode, we're going to talk to Chavisa Woods, a fiction writer and memoirist, about her support for Sanders. But first, we're going to talk to Bill Fletcher Jr. 
Bill is the former president of Trans Africa Forum, a senior scholar with the Institute for Policy Studies, an editorial board member of BlackCommentator.com, and the author or co-author of four books, including They're Bankrupting Us and 20 Other Myths About Unions, and The Indispensable Ally, Black Workers and the Formation of the Congress of Industrial Organizations, 1934 through 1941. We just want to note that we talked to Bill on Friday, February 21st, before we knew the results of the Nevada caucuses. Bill, welcome to the show. Really glad to be on the program. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks so much uh, for for being here. I've listened to you on other shows, including uh, Champagne Sharks, a podcast that I follow, and I'm I'm really excited to get a chance to talk to you. Uh, In 2016, Bernie Sanders lost the black vote to Hillary Clinton by a significant margin. In your essay, Governing Socialism, from the recent collection, We Own the Future, you offer your own critique of Sanders' coalition building during that 2016 campaign. Could you talk a little bit about that, about that and read to us from the essay? Sure. Um, it's, uh, it says, though Sanders advanced the most progressive platform of the candidates, and despite the fact that Sanders had surrogates of color who spoke on his behalf, he faced two major challenges. First, his platform and oratory evidenced little understanding of the centrality of race in the construction and operationalizing of U.S. capitalism. Sanders spoke about the injustices of the system, but generally stayed away from analyzing and explaining the interconnections of race, class, and gender. This had a special impact on older voters of color who constitute a sizable portion of Democratic primary voters. The second challenge was that there is a difference between having spokespersons supporting one's campaign and having real diversity among the strategists. The Sanders campaign lacked the diversity at its highest levels, instead relying mainly on a small team of advisors with whom the senator felt most comfortable. Um, It's interesting. I, uh, before Sanders threw his hat in a ring uh, for the 2016 race, I was asked by the Progressive magazine to write something about if Sanders were to run, what did he need to think about? And I wrote, a, I made a number of suggestions, and and one was that he would he would need to root himself, root himself among communities and social movements of color, and that he would uh, need to move beyond his economic critique of the system and integrate it into, into a broader critique. Um, and I, I think that Sanders didn't get that. He wasn't comfortable with that. And, and therefore, he set himself up so that he became the target of some elements within the movement for black lives and others that were very um, uh, frustrated with him. And then on top of that, uh, he declined to engage at the level, as I said there, the level of strategists, um, veteran activists of color, for reasons that uh, continue to astound me. That was one of my concerns about the way that the Sanders campaign was playing out in 2016, even, even though I was a Sanders supporter. This is really interesting to listen to. I should say I, I enter this conversation with someone who is still thinking really hard about the differences between Sanders and Warren and am not decided at this moment. And, you know, during, as you referenced, um, you know, during 2016, Sanders had that series of confrontations with BLM. 
um, and Black Lives Matter disrupted his rallies and events and demanded he take a bigger stance on issues related to institutional racism and housing, education and criminal justice. Like what sorts of critiques is he getting now? And I mean, how do we think about that series of confrontations and how they've shifted him or not? So that's a great question. Let me just start with um, I continue to be a Sanders supporter. And I think that one of the best things that happened in 2016 is that people kicked him in his rear. Uh, and and they basically said, no, you may be the best, but that's not good enough. And and I think that that's important. And I think that that's important as an overall approach to politics, that not simply accept what's there, but put pressure. He is much more outspoken on foreign policy and I think is the best of all the candidates. Uh, he's taken a courageous stand on Palestine. Uh, whereas a number of the other candidates have either taken a pass on it or have uh, taken really bad positions. Um, he, I think in many ways the way to think about him is that he's responding to pressure, generally in a good way. Um, and we have to keep that pressure up. The other thing, though, I would say is this, that... One of the reasons that I especially continue to harp on this issue of strategies of color is the issue of the bubble. And in any organization and any movement, there is a bubble, an invisible bubble that surrounds the leadership. And that bubble is either generated by the leader or it's generated by people closest to the leader. And that bubble is is there to keep out, quote unquote, bad news um, and to basically keep bad news and criticism away from the leader. And then at a certain point, the bubble can strengthen to not only keep out bad news, but keep out the bearers of bad news. And that means that that any leader needs to surround themselves with people that are prepared to speak the truth. That's why you need a good chief of staff. So his campaign manager is uh, Faiz Shakir, I think. Um, it's a Pakistani-American, one of the very first to be a, a Muslim campaign manager for a U.S. party. You know, I mean, so there are people of color that are affiliated with the campaign, but you feel like there should be more or you want, you think there need to be, maybe he had, maybe that's still someone who is not willing to tell him hard truths. I don't know any of those folks. Right. Um, what I can say is that there are older veterans who are younger than Sanders. <laughs> I, I don't know whether that was subtle enough, um, but are, are, uh, that have an immense amount of experience I see. in social movements and, and that, um, you know, it's it. it I, I think that the, whoever's running the campaign seems to be doing a great job. Um, but I think that it's important to have people that are veteran activists that have bases that are available for him. Uh, one of the things that I would hear in 2016 when uh, people would raise certain questions about Sanders is they'd say, well, people need to get to know him. And I said, no, 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 no. He needs to get pe- get to know people. Uh-huh. Right? He needs to get to know the leaders in the communities of color. 
it's not for the communities of color to go searching for him. Right. And and it's it's a very different approach. And I think that there's some veteran activists that would have uh, helped him in 2016 on that and hopefully are helping him now. But I'm not involved with the campaign, so I don't know. Well, that's what we're kind of, you know, I mean, just looking at the numbers, we have, you know, there's a Monmouth poll from earlier in February that said that showed that he had right after New Hampshire Yep. So that he was backed by 28% of black, non-white, Hispanic, and Asian voters. And that's the best of the Democratic candidates. Biden came in second with support from 20% of those voters. And a, a morning console poll from around the same time had Sanders with 28% support among black voters compared to 35% for Biden. So he was trailing Biden there, but that's significantly better than he was doing with black voters compared to Hillary Clinton uh, when Absolutely. he ran in 2016. So it's, I mean, has he done some things to make up this difference? Yes. Yeah. I think he has. I think he I think that diversifying the campaign, uh, the campaign leadership uh, was very, very important. I think that he has been meeting uh, with leaders. I think he's been speaking out on issues in a way that broadens his message. It's no longer the one note samba of uh, 2016. (laughs) But uh, but it's you know, it's it's much more. it's more melodic. And, um, and I think that that's really important. Now, some of the challenges. Uh, many older black voters were inclined towards or have been inclined towards Joe Biden. Uh, and in part, for a similar reason, they were inclined towards Hillary, which is that both Biden and Hillary were very loyal to a black president. And it's unusual to identify white people who are loyal to black leaders. Uh-huh. Um, and it, but it was very clear that they were. And so there's, there is sort of this sense that they might, that, that, they, they, that they need to get paid back Uh, or they need to receive support as a consequence. Um, Secondly, there are many older black voters that do not believe that the mass of white voters are going to do the right thing in November and that it's too risky going for someone like Sanders and possibly Warren and that you need um, a more middle ground white candidate. Um, now, I happen to think both of those, I, I understand the first assumption, absolutely. And I also understand the second. I just don't agree with it. I mean, that's how uh, I felt in the last election. And that's why I voted for Hillary Clinton. But I'm starting to, I don't feel so good about that choice now. You know? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it was right. Well, I voted for Sanders in the primaries. In, in, in 2016. And I voted for Hillary in the final. Well, yeah. And, right. right? Um, but the problem with candidates like Biden is that they want to return to uh, what they see as a more civilized moment. Uh, in his case, probably the Obama era or, or the Clinton era. And, um, and, and they want to return to normality, 
what they don't understand is there is no returning to normality. <laughs> We're going to have to create a new normality. I think Sugi and I right would now, definitely agree with that. I'm Sugi. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there is no normality. <laughs> no, no, there's not. We're, we're living in a was. period where irrationalism is the dominant discourse of the political right. So all bets are off. And that means you need a leader that speaks to that. I happen to think that that's uh, of the candidates that that's Sanders. Well, see, and, this, I'm sorry. To, I, this is the thing okay. I want to ask you. In, in essence, like I and, and Sugi, I, I'd love for you to chime in on this, too, because I know you're thinking about who you're going to vote for. But, you know, I didn't vote for Sanders in the primary in 2016 because I heard critiques of him from friends of mine in the black community and other you know, people of color, and, and it, it said to me, I can't, oh yeah, I can't support that guy. And, and I feel, I know the Democratic Party candidate is going to have to unify and create a multiracial coalition to win. Now, right. I've always thought that, like, the, the idea that there's no reason why, you know, worker party politics can't be multiracial, right? And I guess we're literally calling you up as someone who's been involved in the socialist movement and has, and, and in left, you know, progressivism mm-hmm. to say, like, can Sanders do this? Is he a safer candidate to vote for on that issue than he was in 2016? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. I, I mean, I think I think that he has learned major lessons. Uh, like I said, I mean, people kicked him in his rear, and he, and he deserved it. And and some, you know, and and uh, and I think that um, that definitely influenced his shift. There's, there's no question in my mind, as my father would have said, there's no bow to doubt it. Um, but I but I think that um, they, so I, the way I look at it is that this is not just an election against Trump. It's an election about the future. And I don't think that that's a cliche. Um it's, it's not going to be good enough, and this is where the Bloomberg candidacy comes in. It's not going to be good enough to basically to just block Trump. Um, we have to articulate a set of politics that really challenges the way that the economy and the environment, the foreign policy of this country have been unfolding. And it means new vision, not a retreat to a safer time. What we don't need is for a Democrat to defeat Trump and then basically go back to the Obama-Biden era and say, okay, let's go. You know, remember that thing called the Trans-Pacific Partnership? Yeah. Let's, let's resuscitate that. We don't need that. We don't need a recitation of these neoliberal trade agreements we need something different. And that's why I think we have to go bold. So, Bill, it's 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 really helpful to hear you talk about this and also hear you talk about the fact that you think that Bernie Sanders has been responsive to critique. Um, and you're also talking about older voters. It seems to me that a lot of the movement of younger voters of color seems to be, um, you know, sort of uh, pinned to the endorsement of three-fourths of the squad, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib have all endorsed Sanders. Uh, you know, the fourth member of the squad, yes. Ayanna Presley, has endorsed Warren, is, but has also been supportive of Sanders. So if Bernie is doing a better job running a diverse campaign this time around, maybe the question becomes, 
how black voters are going to respond to democratic socialism. I heard an interview on WNYC with Michael Eric Dyson. and He said that, uh, quote, uh, black voters, quote, may vote democratic, but many of them hold views that most likely align with the conservative interests, end quote. And I was curious about whether you agreed with that. Well, let me answer it this way. This election is not an election about democratic socialism any more than the 1960 election was about Catholicism. Um, In 1960, JFK was uh, the first Roman Catholic to be elected president. And as you may remember from history books, there was a lot of, I mean, a surprising amount of antipathy that was advanced because this Catholic might become a servant of the Pope. Now, today, that sounds absolutely ludicrous. But if you look back on the historical record, there was there was an incredible mania around this. Um, Kennedy was not running to institute a Catholic theocracy, and he was <laughs> right, and and he, and he wasn't running to say my views are going to uh, going to dominate over the U.S. Constitution. Bernie Sanders happens to be a democratic socialist. His campaign in 2016 and today is not a socialist candidacy. I would describe it as a sort of left populist. Yeah, I mean, I don't think people really know what these terms mean. I mean, a real socialist would say, "Okay, we're going to take over major industry um, and it's going to be owned by the government. But he's he specifically said, I'm not doing that. That's not what I'm doing. You know, well, he 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 right. He understands that he understands the moment and he understands the nature of the political alignment out there and that that people are not approaching the 2020 election with the objective of bringing them into existence socialism. Now, I personally wish they were, but that's <laughs> right, but that's not what's happening. And and so his that's why it's important and it's important to understand that this issue of uh, socialism and communism are all red herrings, no pun intended, um, that are being thrown out there. He happens to be a democratic socialist. His views are influenced by that. But his alignment, the block or coalition that he's building, is not a socialist alliance. Leaving your particular ideas aside, the platform you're running on is that's the mandate. And that people are accepting you're a democratic socialist or a Roman Catholic or a Sunni Muslim or uh, a Jewish or whatever. They're accepting that. But that's not necessarily what they're voting on. And that distinction becomes very, very important. And I think as we proceed further into 2020, we're going to have to reiterate that because you can already see uh, the red baiting and the anti-Semitism that's being targeted at Sanders. Well, it seems like a perfect place to ask you to read maybe from that. Uh, you, you, you addressed this directly in the essay, Governing Socialism, that we already mentioned. I wondered if you could read that part for us. It's no secret that the self-described left, however successful, has always been far too small to control the country or even a state or city on its own. Fast as the Democratic Socialists of America's membership might grow, or that of any other left formation for that matter, Democratic Socialists specifically and the left more generally are not a plurality in any electoral precinct in the country. As a consequence, they'll need to make friends 
both to win office and critically to stay there. The success of any movement almost always hinges on its ability to win over the so-called middle forces that may have been ambivalent or in some degree of opposition to a left-led bloc. You know, the, the reason that I focused on that is that there are many, uh, particularly young leftists, who ignore the question of the middle. And they think that the left on its own can win, uh, whether it's in the form of a, a Sanders election or uh, in some other case. And that's, that's, uh, that's false. It, it, it won't happen. But on top of that, what we have to be careful about is that the left can influence the middle to the extent that our ideas are clear and compelling and resonate with the concerns of the middle. But we also have to be very keenly aware that the middle, for reasons that I don't entirely understand, is less forgiving of the left than it is of the right. <laughs> and and that, just think about it, right? I was talking about like, that. Like the, I like the, for the, reasons I don't entirely understand part of that was the part that made me laugh. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, fair. you think about the right wing. The right wing can be corrupt, devastatingly corrupt. Yeah. Look at Trump, right? And the middle will sort of shrug, um, if the left, if uh, someone on the left is elected and finds themselves slightly tainted by corruption, think about the Florida governor's race, um, slightly tainted, all of a sudden the middle starts running to the right. Speaking of the middle, you know, uh, uh, or, you know, people you know who are from uh, the, uh, a group of you know, voters of color, this uh, culinary union in Nevada um, is not endorsing Sanders. This has become right. an issue. Um, they don't want his Medicare for all plan. Uh, they're concerned because they've negotiated for a really good health plan. And then some of the old stuff from 2016 that we're talking about before has come up because two of uh, the secretary treasurer for the union and the communications director are both women of color. And they say they're getting harassed by Bernie supporters. Uh, Bernie's not doing it. He's disavowed them. They want him to disavow it more. That's become a whole deal. I just, I, I mean, I'm just bringing that up because I think we have to at least address it as we're having this conversation. Well, there's a few things there. So first, it's uh, the culinary uh, workers were part of the Uni uh, Unite Here um, is a tremendous union. And um, I'm deeply, deeply disappointed that they've taken the stand that they have because Essentially, their position is, we're doing fine, thank you very much. And and for the rest of you, well, join a union. That's essentially what they're saying. And and I, I'm, I'm sort of astounded that given their progressive history, that that's what they would articulate. Um, because what it ends up feeling like is that they're looking out for the institutional interests of their organization, rather than the political interest of workers. And so I'm hoping that they will reconsider that position. I think in terms of uh, the uh, allegations of harassment, let's be clear. Sanders has spoken out against the harassment of opponents. Uh, he's been very clear about that. 
if his any of the people that work for him are doing something that is unethical or otherwise inappropriate, they need to be canned, pure and simple. But that's not going to stop an individual person who is up in Reno sitting by their computer deciding that they're going to jack up the secretary treasurer of the culinary workers. I mean, that's that, it's going to happen. But the other thing that's important for us to keep in mind that we should not stop worrying about is that there are a variety of nefarious forces out there that would love to see a splintering of progressive uh, groups. And I'm talking about, I'm not just talking about the Russians, I'm talking about the Republicans. And I'm talking about those that would like to foment trouble, whether it's between Sanders and Warren, between the culinary workers and Sanders or whatever. And and one of the things I learned from my early days as a, as a radical and uh, discovering um, COINTELPRO, the counterintelligence program, is that one must be very careful before jumping to conclusions about who is behind anything, because it may turn out that it's more complicated than what was once thought. This is so interesting, Bill, because I'm just thinking before about what you were saying about, you know, why is the middle more forgiving of the right and sort of goes right? Um, and thinking also about your comments about holding Bernie accountable. And I just wanted to read for a second from Dream Defenders put out a statement endorsing Bernie Sanders. And they said this. They said, we are not electing a savior. We are electing a political opponent who we will hold accountable to meet our demands. And just in listening to you, I find like one of the things that's so refreshing is thinking about the ways that um, self-critique is a part of the movement. And I think that, you know, the left has a long tradition of using self-critique as a mode of advancement. But it seems like the question is how to maintain a tradition of self-critique without allowing opponents to use it to splinter the movement. And I, I think I, yes. I should also say, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm speaking from the point of view of, you know, I'm someone who's part of a minority community. I'm Thummel. And I'm also someone who was critical of um, or has been critical of Thummel militancy and Thummel nationalism in my community. And so when, um, like, how is it possible to have a left politics that is critical, but also in solidarity with the larger the larger movement. And so thinking about that, um, and also the fact that I work on a non-unionized campus, um, I'm just, I'm curious about how you, how, how can we balance that? Well, I, I appreciate this question. Um, and we could spend the entire episode on just this question. <laughs> That's probably right. Yeah. Uh, but I, this is what I would say. What's critical is to be principled and to depersonalize. You know, it's one of the things that I've learned is that that when you that one way to ensure that there's fragmentation is to personalize a criticism, to go to someone's intent, uh, to to read into something without doing an investigation. Um, and I think it's important when we're offering criticisms to be careful. I mean, when I've offered criticisms of the Sanders campaign, they may not appreciate the criticisms, but I'm not being personal about it. I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm pointing out the, what I think to be, at, at different points, significant political weaknesses. And, and when we keep the, the differences 
at the principled level, we can argue fiercely without it turning into war. And that's what we've got to understand. And, and, and so what I've found is I've, I've spent a lot of time on Twitter repeating the same thing. Focus on Trump. Focus on Trump. That we can make criticisms of different candidates. But we have to be very clear. Our objective is to send Trump into retirement. And that the criticisms that are made of politicians, and and I would say even someone like Bloomberg, who with whom I have significant disagreements, keep criticisms principled, focused on what is what he has done, his stands, etc. It doesn't matter what's going on in his head. We don't need to engage in some suppositions. You look at someone's practice. You look at their theory and you deal with that. Um, The other thing is that particularly I say this to my friends on the left. We have to always keep in mind when what are splitting differences and what are not. It's sort of like in, in in a marriage that you may have a difference over uh where you squeeze the toothpaste, right? And and some people are really fanatical about that, right? It's like, no, at you must squeeze at the bottom, right? And <laughs> at they, the bottom, that's get, right, that's right. right. Exactly. And they get furious with a partner that will squeeze at the top. Well, you have to ultimately decide, okay, this really bothers me, but is it enough for me to divorce? <laughs> that's the question. And that's the issue that the left has to think of, needs to think about every time. We, this is a difference, and it might be a very important difference, but is it enough for me to walk away? And, and unfortunately, many friends on the left don't stop and think about that. So, Bill, on a more personal note, what has your history with socialism been? Were there writers, Richard Wright, for example, who caught your imagination with these ideas or a particular mentor who set you on this path? When I was 13, I read the autobiography of Malcolm X. And it changed my life. Um, and I, I had been interested in world affairs uh, even at a very young age. And, um, but... I uh, I read that, and and by the end of the book, I knew what I wanted to do with my life. Right. I mean, I, I did. And um, and then shortly thereafter, I heard about this organization called the Black Panther Party, and I became very interested in their politics, um, and I became very close to the Panthers. I didn't join them, but I became very close. And the um, and and I embraced radical politics. Uh, I, I came to believe that capitalism as a system was antithetical to the future of a civilized humanity. And uh, I I became deeply interested in socialist theory, and have never lost interest in that. Um, and it is, it's really shaped my life. 
Now, in the course of that, there's been a variety of different writers, um, you know, like Marx and Engels and others that have influenced me. But it was the fall of 1967 at the age of 13 that in reading the autobiography of Malcolm X that my life shifted. Well, you know, we're, we're a, a, a podcast that talks about the news through literature. And so that's a kind of wonderful story of the kind of power that literature can have on people in terms of their politics. Um, so let's say that Bernie pulls this off. Mm-hmm. What would a Democratic Socialist administration look like? It wouldn't be. <laughs> no, so see, Wall Street's that, not going to shut point. down immediately and we're going to just haul all those guys off to jail and uh, that's not well, how it's going to look? Well, no, 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 no. See, let, let's clarify this. It <laughs> won't be, it would not, if Bernie wins, it will not be a democratic socialist administration. You're right, you're right. It would be a Bernie Sanders presidency. Right. Um, and And my guess is that whoever his vice presidential running mate would be, would not have the same politics as as Bernie. Um, I think, though, that there might be people in Wall Street that go to jail. Um, And in fact, if Obama had done the right thing in 2009, he would have brought charges against people in Wall Street. And Obama certainly wasn't a socialist. But I think that Uh, What I would look for in a Sanders administration is complicated by this. A lot will depend on what happens in the House and the Senate. Because if the Republicans retain control of the Senate, then what we're dealing with is a repeat of the Obama years. A sort of trench warfare between the, the, the elements of government. And a lot would depend on the ex, on executive orders. This is one of the reasons that it's really, really important that people are not focused singularly on the presidential elections. We've got to be thinking about down-ballot elections, Senate, House, state uh, offices, et cetera. Um, so hopefully a, 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 a Sanders administration would also be a flag bearer for progressive politics at the local level, using the strength of the bully pulpit to advance and to support candidates at the, at the, at the local level who are running to try to bring about change. Um, I would also assume that there would be significant investments in uh, public works. Um, there would be the rejoining of the Paris Accords and uh, on the environment and probably significant steps towards retooling or aimed at retooling industries so that we're addressing the, the environmental uh, catastrophe that we're in the midst of. Um, there would also undoubtedly be shifts in foreign policy uh, the Netanyahu government in Israel would probably not be very happy. Uh, it, that is, if Netanyahu is not in jail, um, one hopes he is. Um, the uh, there would probably be 
a rapprochement with many of the U.S. traditional allies um, <clears throat> and hopefully a downgrading of this constant threat of war. The funny thing is there's probably not going to be Medicare for all unless, of course, the Senate is one. And I think in some ways the discussion around Medicare for all and the way it's happening is unfortunate because even as a supporter of Medicare for all, it's not going to happen all at once. That's highly unlikely. <clears throat> I think that what um, uh, Warren was laying out is probably a more likely scenario that it would happen in stages. And, and I think that there will have to be some level of stages in part because people are going to have to be convinced that this is going to work, that this is not going to be a great loss. In addition, there's going to be institutional opposition from the insurance companies and multi-employer plans. Bill, I feel like this is the beginning of, hopefully this is the beginning of so many interesting um, election season conversations. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. And now we're excited to welcome Chavisa Woods to the show. Chavisa is the author of three books of fiction, Things to Do When You're Goth in the Country, The Albino Album, and Love Does Not Make Me Gentle or Kind. Her most recent book, 100 Times, A Memoir of Sexism, came out last year. Woods is a McDowell Fellow and was the recipient of the Shirley Jackson Award for 2018, the Kathy Acker Award, and the Cobalt Prize. She is a three-time Lambda Literary Award finalist for fiction and was the recipient of the 2009 Jerome Foundation Award for Emerging Authors. Her writing has appeared in such publications as Tin House, Lit Hub, Electric Lit, and others. Chavisa, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Chavisa, I became a fan of your work after following the Facebook posts that turned into 100 times. More recently, you've been writing about your support for Sanders and your thoughts on the Democratic primary in general. In one of those notes, you wrote, quote, I'm for Bernie first and foremost because I know he is the most likely candidate to beat Trump. We're taping this on Sunday, February 23rd, and last night Bernie won huge in Nevada, making him the first candidate ever to win the popular vote in the first three primary states. But I think you were saying this about him being most likely to beat Trump before he was so decisively ahead in the polls. So what made you think that that would be the case, that this would happen? I think um, a large portion of the country is experiencing an endless economic crisis that people who are not directly experiencing that are really not aware of. And a lot of those people who aren't experiencing that are people who run the media and who are figureheads on the media and who write for the New York Times and maybe, you know, upper middle class and more wealthy coastal liberals in, in bubbles in cities um, and also in somewhat economic bubbles. And I understand that these people are shocked that this is happening. But I think that one of the reasons Trump won was because he spoke to this economic crisis that these people are experiencing. Unfortunately, he told them, hey, one of the reasons you're experiencing this is because of immigrants and people of color and we've got to get rid of them. And he played on their, their bigotry that was already there. Um, but I also think many of these people see what a joke he is and see that he's not really delivering. And they want a candidate who's offering an alternative that still speaks to the crisis that they're experiencing, um, whether they're Democrat or Republican or independents or somewhere in the middle. And I think this is shocking everyone who runs the media. Um, but I think 
you know, there's a lot more people in crisis than they realize. So in your collection, Things to Do When You're Goth in the Country and other stories, you wrote about the lives of rural people living in poverty. And on Facebook, you wrote, uh, quote, I support Bernie Sanders because I have experienced dire poverty. That's why I find the out and out hatred of Sanders bizarre and saddening. And come to think of it, I don't personally know any liberal who has come from poverty who hates Bernie Sanders. Um, Could you read to us from your book and tell us more about how poverty connects to your choices in politics now? Absolutely, sure. Um, So I write a lot in my book about what I consider working in my book, Things to Do When You're Goth in the Country Anyway, what I consider working class and what probably a lot of people who are from sort of better off places would consider poor. Um, But I think in those areas, they don't necessarily consider themselves poor. They consider themselves working class. The town that I come from, I think right now, 21% of households live below the poverty line, which is quite high. Yeah. Um, but so then everything becomes relative to them in their minds. People who are living in poverty see themselves as working class and they see people who are really middle class nationally as wealthy. Um, and they also lose um, a relationship with like how many people have how much money. You know, a lot of people in the country have a lot of money, but that would be shocking to them to know. Almost as shocking as it would to the rich people to know how many people live in poverty. Um, so I'm going to read to you from what's happening on the news. And this is just a little bit about, um, the types of people in the town where I grew up. This is when a soldier, and this also happened regularly in my school, is coming into a, um, junior high classroom to talk to the kids about, um, about going into the army. A soldier stood before us once again, fidgeting with a duffel bag. Boys, he told the boys, in about four years, you'll be old enough to be drafted. Usually, if something was only available to the boys, the girls protested the unfairness of the situation. Everyone kept quiet here. Boys and girls, he told told us all. In about four years, you'll be deciding whether to go to college or get a job. There are a lot of big choices ahead of you. He produced a gas mask. It looked like an elephant head. He asked for a volunteer. One of the boys went up and the soldier showed us how to wear the gas mask. He placed it over the boy's head. The boy looked like a weird elephant headed God. He waved his arms clowning. We giggled. How many of you want to go to college? The soldier asked us. Less than half of us raised our hands. I lived in a rural farm town of a thousand people. There were 200 kids in my school, which housed the seventh to 12th grades and combined the populations of three towns, mine and the neighboring hamlets. Most of our families didn't have money for us to go to college. Most of our parents hadn't attended college. Some of our parents hadn't even completed high school. There were a few farms to be inherited. There was the cement factory and the car parts factory in the next town over. There were two gas stations and one dollar store. There was also nursing and teaching. These were mostly our options. In my entire class, two people would go on from graduation directly to a four-year college. One of them, me, would drop out the first year. For those of you who raised your hands, and also for those of you who didn't, college is a great opportunity. 
You know, if you join the military, you can go to basically any college you want. And I mean for free. We pay for it. If you go to college, that means you can get whatever job you want when you're older. Think about that. We thought about that. We were 13 and 14-year-olds thinking about it. What do you want to be when you grow up? He pointed to Josh. In two years, Josh would be dead. Beginning my eighth grade year, each year, one student in my school would die. And also one girl would get pregnant. So I guess it evened out. It was a stable population. The deaths were all unrelated to each other. My freshman year, Justin drowned in the creek while swimming with my two boyfriends. My sophomore year, Josh got depressed and rammed his Hot Wheel at 80 in a 20, twisting his car around the American flagpole in the town triangle. We didn't have a square, we had a triangle, set between warring gas stations. He was 16 and they say his head smashed clear through the hole in the steering wheel, like the Wayne reduction of a cat slipping between impossible openings. The girls got dressed up to cry in the tiled halls like a gathering of distressed school birds. And we all discovered who had really loved him before they slew each other over which one had worn the most scandalous skirt to the funeral. My junior year, Blaine sucked the barrel of a shotgun after blowing the fine white globe of his two-year-old daughter's skull to bits. His ex-girlfriend, the child's mother, threatened the school populace with unnamed punishment if they attended his funeral. Her daughter's coffin was so small, and the mother only 18. I remember her in the study hall looking like a thin succession of lines meeting at a shivering torso bent mourning a dead child over SATs. My senior year, my brother's best friend died because of a broken arm. His arm got an infection under the cast where it had been stitched. His mother had spent so much money on the initial emergency room visit, she didn't want to go back to the hospital, thinking his arm would heal on its own. He died from a gangrene infection two years after I graduated. The valedictorian of the class below me overdosed on heroin and meth in her living room with her one-year-old daughter in her arms. But this was not yet. None of this has happened yet. And live Josh, handsome, still living Josh, sat with his mop of blonde hair and hopeful 14-year-old eyes sparkling at the soldier, pointed, commanding him to contemplate what he wanted to be when he grew up. He wanted to be a veterinarian or an engineer. He wasn't sure. The soldier turned told him he could learn engineering in the military. Okay, I'll stop there. Thank you. Um, that's an incredibly powerful passage. Um, you mentioned a couple times uh, the town that you grew up in, uh, um, but for our listeners who might not be familiar with uh, your work, could you tell us where that town is? Sure. I'm from um, a town of 1,000 people. I think it might have grown to like 1,400 people by this time um, in southern Illinois. Um, so a lot of people don't realize southern, like Illinois is long and it actually goes down south of St. Louis, um, sort of like equilateral to Missouri. Yeah, well, I'm in um, Missouri, so we, we're, we're aware of that part. But yes, you're right, aware a lot of, of people don't know that. Yeah, so there was an active KKK in my town. Um, there's like Confederate flags in some places in the town, but it's also still far enough north that like 
there are some, you know, Democrat groups in the town. Um, but it's, there's some part of it that feels really Southern. It feels like a strange mix of the Midwest and the South. It does. I agree with that. I mean, you know, you don't see a lot of Confederate flags around Kansas City, but if I drive south around St. Louis, I start to see those a lot, a lot more. Um, regardless, um, or given that positioning, you know, that's that's deep. Well, Illinois is thought of as being a blue state, but you're talking about what would be in Missouri, a deep red state territory. You know. Oh yeah. Do you imagine these people voting for Sanders? So this was my experience um, in the 2016 primary, and I was actually pretty shocked. I go home um, anywhere from two to four times a year. And let's just, just to let the audience know, in the 2016 general election, 75% of my county went for Trump. That's how much they disliked Hillary. And I think 10% went for Gary Johnson, which doesn't leave much for Hillary Clinton. Um, so that's how red of a county we're talking about. Um, and when I went home during the primary, many, many people who were, and a lot of people there, this is another thing, don't necessarily define themselves as Republicans, even if they're registered Republicans so they can vote in primaries. Um, they define themselves as libertarian and independent. Um, Republican and Democrat is not quite as popular there as it is in other places. A lot of people really like to sort of have that autonomy from the party. And those are a lot of people who are, you know, quote unquote, swing voters. Um, I know when I went there, all of the Democrats really liked Bernie during the 2016 election or the vast majority that I spoke to. Um, the hardcore Republicans hated Bernie Sanders, but the centrist Republicans, the libertarians and the independents were all very excited to vote for Bernie. And at that time, we're talking about Trump like he was a joke. He was a clown. He wasn't, a, you know, and he's also not a good Christian. Like they didn't really like all of the affairs <laughs> that he had had with porn stars. And that he seemed to sort of live this really illicit life. Um, but as soon as Bernie Sanders was out and Hillary Clinton won the nomination, I went back and I was really disturbed to see people start saying, like, I'm just not going to vote or I'm going to vote for Trump instead. And I think that's what, and none of these people were Democrats, by the way. And I think that's what my friends who are li like neoliberals in New York don't understand. When you see that statistic about the Bernie bros voting for Trump in spite of, you know, for spite because Hillary Clinton got the nomination. These people may have really liked Bernie, but a lot of these people had not voted Democrat much, if ever. You didn't lose leftists and liberals. You, you lost the swing voters who hated Clinton and would never have voted for her with or without Bernie Sanders. The other reason that we're – that's really interesting, and that's a wonderful answer. Thank you. Um, the other – the thing we're uh, – one of the things we're looking at in this particular episode of the podcast is like, you know, Sanders had a, had a bad rep, – had a reputation for not having addressed uh, voters of color in the first election. That's what we were talking to Bill Fletcher Jr. about before we're speaking to you. And also uh, – not having a lot of support from women, but you're, you know, a, a woman who has been very vocally supportive of Bernie uh, Sanders. And you wrote in a fa Facebook post on January 20th, which I found and uh, liked, um, I've been criticized for supporting Bernie Sanders in ways that I found perplexing. When AOC gave her endorsement to Sanders, I saw, I saw many people ask, why doesn't she just support Elizabeth Warren instead? Um, and the reason, because I like, because like Sanders, AOC is a democratic socialist and Elizabeth Warren is not. 
I'm tired of seeing Bernie supporters slandered when I know that I and many of my friends have come to the conclusion that he is the strongest candidate from a foundation of compassion for other humans, a dedication to economic justice, and a critical analysis of the broader electorate. It's just interesting to me because so many people talk about how Sanders supporters are aggressive, but I, I thought it was interesting that you had felt criticized for supporting him. I wonder if you could talk about that. Yeah, sure. And I also want to say, like, I am also a big fan of Elizabeth Warren. I actually love Elizabeth Warren. Um, my preference has always been slightly Bernie Sanders, um, just because he's I'm more left than Bernie Sanders. <laughs> and, you know, and Bernie has a good... Um, he has a good track record. A lot of her platform are things that, you know, he built and that then he pushed a lot of other people left. Um, he also has a lot of momentum. I think he's a, he's a strong debater, but if we, as we've seen more recently, she can be a very strong debater too. Um, so I, I do feel sometimes torn between these two candidates, but in the end I fall on Bernie Sanders side. Um, I have felt that the Bernie bro narrative was always something that was um, a media campaign and it was trumped up. I know that I was called, um, I'm not sure what I can say on your podcast. You can say anything. We can, you can say anything you want. It's already going to be marked as explicit, so go for it. I remember just being, you know, online and talking about Bernie Sanders in 2016 and a couple of straight male Hillary Clinton supporters came on and one, they called. They said that I had internalized sexism and that I was self-hating. And then they ended up calling me a stupid bitch. And one of them called me a cunt at one point. And I thought, well, this is really ironic. I'm getting yelled at by two men who tell me I'm functioning off of sexism. And then they're calling me <laughs> these biz- bigoted slurs. Um, <laughs> so I think that when, you know, there's always this rule that if you say, say something loudly enough, and repeat it, it becomes true. And I, I'm trying to really figure out what is happening. Um, I saw recently in 2008 that a woman who regularly wrote, you know, positive articles um, and profiles of Hillary Clinton wrote an article called, Hey, Obama Boys, Back Off. I think I remember seeing this on your Facebook wall. And that was mind-blowing to me. I know how, these, how media strategy works. I know that they throw things at candidates and try to get them to stick. But they actually were like, Obama boys are, you know, voting for Obama just because they hate Hillary Clinton and they're sexist. The women, they said, who are on Obama's team are there because so many boys like Obama. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) (laughs) That is bad. And also because they have a crush on Obama. Then they said they've heard a lot of these Obama boys say if Obama doesn't get the nomination, Hillary gets it. They're going to vote for the Republican candidate if he doesn't win. The girls are just there because the boys are there. The boys are doing this out of sexism. And it was just point and then and that they're being too aggressive online. And I was like, this is the this is Bernie bros. They called them Obama boys first. It didn't work. So they tried to recycle it with Bernie. And for some reason it worked. Um, I, I find it very bizarre. I think all supporters of all different candidates can be nasty online. I can be nasty online. There's something about online that isn't really healthy for humans to communicate through that medium. Yeah. When I was reading your post about this on Facebook, it made so much sense to me because just sort of in my personal life, I think, you know, a lot of the people, I don't actually know that off the top of my head, I, that I personally know a man who supports Elizabeth Warren. Um, but I do know lots of men who support Bernie Sanders and I know a lot of women who support Elizabeth Warren and sort of the rhetoric online, like when you wrote that a lot of this is about just sort of gender dynamics, broadly speaking, that made a lot of sense to me um, because, 
yeah, I mean, it seemed like so much of the rhetoric was gendered in a in a way, but I hadn't thought about how it was broader beyond even just these two campaigns or or sort of back in history. Yeah, and I think that's something that's important to note is like when I talk to men online, I often get cussed at. Some, one of them recently just told, straight up told me to shut the fuck up on my Facebook page. And I, my response to that was, who are you and why are you speaking to me this way? I, I, try not, I try not to do that. And I do it sometimes when I get angry, but I try not to lash back with that sort of vitriol. Um, but it comes a lot, and I have noticed it comes a lot from men to women real hard, real heavy, right up front, especially online. I'm not sure why that is. I think, you know, the simple reason is sexism. Um, well, to draw this back yeah. to your comment about the media, I mean, I want to, we haven't, we'd mentioned this at the top, but, you know, Chris Matthews, it, it, there's a whole Twitter campaign today to get him fired because he was compared uh, Bernie's victory to like the Germans beginning their invasion of France, you know, it's like, which seemed insane um, and over the top. And, and, and James Carville also sort of had a, a, a kooky meltdown. They, they seem very angry that, that Bernie is winning these, these primaries. They are struggling for relevance. It is, <laughs> it is ugly. It is ugly. James Carville should just not be, a, how is that guy still a commentator? I do not understand. <laughs> I just like, sorry, I have like very little patience for this stuff today. Uh, this is a, um, I want to hear this from you. Bring it on, Sugi. What do you got? I mean, just, I, I don't know. Like I, the way that MSNBC, I mean, I was on Twitter this morning looking at this stuff and the way that commentators were reacting to Bernie Sanders win, I mean, frankly, like I'm still not sure who I'm going to vote for, but the notion that Bernie Sanders victory is similar to the Germans overrunning the Maginot line is like, so absurd. And James Carville, James Carville is from the Clinton era. He's from the Clinton era. We're, haven't we been talking about how they laid the foundation for all of the bullshit that we're currently experiencing? Um, I just, I think that the media, you know, you made this point earlier about the media lacking class diversity. They also lack racial and ethnic diversity. And really, they're still not very gender diverse either. And never was that more apparent than yesterday in the post-Nevada uh, caucus commentary when you were just sort of like, who are we listening to? Are you, they're supposed to be bringing analysis and and illumination to these to these results, and instead they're sort of, you know, they're they're all but barricading the castle, which is not their job, or at least I didn't think it was their job. Anyway, rant. Um, but you, you were mentioning Chavisa that you said Warren is a very close second for you, and I think one of the things I've really appreciated about your commentary is you've written about both your respect for her and also spent some time articulating what for you were the real differences between the two of them. So I'm curious, you said you're more left than Bernie. Would you call yourself a democratic socialist or a socialist? You know, Bill Fletcher was saying that he thought that the Sanders campaign was actually a populist left campaign. And, and you know, how would you characterize it? And what do you see as the most important differences between Sanders and Warren? Sure. Um, so those are a lot of questions. Let me see. I think that, you know, when you talk about what you are and these labels like socialism, capitalism in America, it's sort of like America is so capitalist that it's almost like stating a religious belief <laughs> because you can't really practice um, your like economic or social theory in such a capitalist society or else you won't have anything. You have to practice capitalism and participate in capitalism in some way when you live in this society. I, I come from a background of anarcho-Marxism. 
which is very different than democratic socialism. <laughs> um, I wonder how many people you know. can say that in the in, in America. Probably not as many, but maybe more than you would think. Yeah, um, I think we're it's a niche group, and I have my <laughs> friends, and we're anarcho-Marxists, and that's fine. Um, and we, you know, but do, share, I have a share, a question, share a lot of food. <laughs> I have a question for you about that, yeah. though, because at the point of being embedded in capitalism, I always think about this, like, I have a lot of criticism of capitalism, and yet I still have to invest, you know, I still have a retirement, you know, and that I still save money and there's nowhere to put it. But in capitalist, you know, it's not like there's an anarcho-marxist, you know, mutual fund that you can try to save money. <laughs> oh, my God. No, right. you know? <laughs> that's, not, that's not how it works. That's actually part of my 401k. Um, that would I be mean, amazing. <laughs> I, I moved to St. Louis when I was 18 and I moved into, um, you know, a, a collective that was a group of many collectives in St. Louis of um, anarchist collective and we lived really really nicely for very cheap um i had less money but i had more time and we you know grew our own food in our garden and we dumpstered food it was the night like well i guess it was 2000 but that's what we did and we shared all of the food and all of the bills and all of the resources and we um were also activists and took part in political action together and i remember trying to talk to my family about this and they were just like you're in a cult <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, well, this is interesting. I mean, how can it be a cult if there's no leader? Like, that's one of the main ingredients missing from a cult. But also the fact that you would look at interacting with your neighbors, sharing food with a group of people, sharing some, like, political beliefs or having similar political beliefs and taking part in, like, political or spiritual actions as a cult. I mean, isn't that what a family does? Um, is the nuclear family a cult? I would say things like that to my family and it would just be like, make them more certain that I was in a cult. Um, so that's where I'm coming from. I, you know, lived successfully in successful anarchist communities for many years in my youth. Um, it just, I guess they, I grew, you know, I wanted a little more space as I got older. Things got too dirty for me. I got a partner and now I live a mostly typical capitalist existence <laughs> somewhat. Um, but yeah, so Bernie is is further right than me. He is the compromise. And I think when people say, well, what about Elizabeth? Why don't you just vote for her? It's like, well, then that's just pushing the envelope a little bit further right for some people. Um, <laughs> specifically, <laughs> how do you find, like specifically, what do you think in practical terms would be the difference between a Sanders administration and a Warren administration? The biggest thing for me is I don't think she will be elected. Um I would be happy to have either of them as the president. And if I could wave a magic wand and make one of them the president, I don't really care who it is, honestly. I think they're both going to be great representatives. I think Elizabeth Warren is smart. She has good plans. Um, her her health care plan takes a little bit more time and gives a little bit more to private insurance than Bernie Sanders. It's just a little bit more of a compromise. Um you know, a lot of things with her are he, when he talks about abortion rights, he's like abortion is a constitutional right. He doesn't want to go state by state. He's he also says, you know, under his plan, abortions not only will be legal, um, it will be mandatory for them to be legal in the states and they will be free. And this is what he's working toward. I don't think he's going to magically get all this done when he goes in. But I do think like, you know, if you shoot for the stars, maybe we'll land on the moon kind of thing. Like he's really shooting for what I believe in. Um, with all of these policies and hers seem to be more drafted off of his. A lot of them are. And she says that they are, that they're built off of his policies. But I don't know. I don't want to trash Elizabeth Warren. I really do love her. 
I have a lot of respect for her, especially after the last debate. Um, I just don't think she has the movement. I also think that she has this, and this is really unfortunate, but don't you feel like a lot of times Americans vote based on their gut feeling? Yeah. And I mean, this sort of gets to, I mean, Chavisa, some of the policy things you're saying, you're um, almost anticipating my my next question, which was about, um, you know, it's notable that now, and you wrote about this too, that lots of women support Sanders. You know, that that Bernie Bros label, many people have complained, and, and rightly, I think, that it erases um, the women, the people of color, the women of color with whom he's polling extremely well. And you've said that you think he's a fighter for women's rights, for people of color, and for LGBTQ rights. I think the thing that I sometimes wonder about, and maybe this is where we get to my gut feeling, um, a lot of his supporters with whom I have personally interacted, and this is just like the coincidence of my own life, right? I think are people who are speaking in very personal ways and who sort of will say things like, if you're not with this movement, like you're a failure. And I don't think that all of his supporters are saying that. But they're the ones that I'm seeing. And my reflexive, I think probably, for, first of all, my reflexive contrarianness and like my desire to just not be told what to do um, have been a problem there. And so I think like when I hear this stuff, I sort of reflexively end up with, you know, sort of putting myself, even though I think probably from a policy perspective, I probably agree more with Sanders, but like literally the Warren supporters whom I personally know, and this is so anecdotal and problematic, right? are people with whom I've had better interactions. I think, well, so this is so interesting because I'm having, I, I've, I've actually been muting like people who are like, if you don't support Bloomberg, you're an idiot, you know? Oh <laughs> like, yeah, I'm oh, for sure I'm also you. supporting those people, yeah. I think anyone, when anyone tells you like, if you don't do this, you're an idiot. And I have weirdly on my page, it's, or on my feeds, it's like women telling me, telling people like you're sexist if you don't support Elizabeth Warren. And you're an idiot or you're naive if you don't support Bloomberg. So I'm actually analyzing this. But then when I probably, because I like Bernie Sanders, when I see people saying, you got to get behind Bernie, I'm like, yeah, I'm behind Bernie. And I wonder if that's true for you. Like if you see people saying you're sexist, if you don't support Elizabeth Warren, you're like, I like Elizabeth Warren and you should support her. It's feminist. Do you know what I mean? But if you're not on her side, you're, I don't know. I, I um, will say that I listen to the Chapo Trap House podcast, which is a famous you know, that popularized parts of the Bernie Sanders world. And those guys really are very aggressive. And and it is oh, a very sure. much you're with me or again, or, and they are very critical of Warren supporters. And I'm not saying that doesn't happen. Yeah, I guess my point is that I think, again, this is coming from a lot of supporters of every single candidate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with you. That's true. So I, and I only see this question again being asked about Bernie Sanders. And I think for us, it gets the ones who aren't doing that. It gets a little tiring, especially when so many people have actually come on my page and sent me messages calling me a sexist for not supporting Elizabeth Warren. And then at the same time, I'm supposed to take that and then apologize for some men I've never heard of who are being aggressive about Bernie Sanders. <laughs> people are aggressive about all yeah. the candidates. <laughs> let me let me pull out let me pull out one part of my question. So yeah. I think like one of my questions about Sanders, and this doesn't really have to do with his supporters, it has to do with sort of moments when off the cuff he seems to be speaking about, or not even off the cuff, he seems to be speaking about race or gender. And he speaks in a way that it doesn't even like, I don't actually believe that he's sexist or racist, but off the cuff, he doesn't seem to speak well or with like great, someone online used the word fluency. And I thought that that was, that was helpful. Like he doesn't seem to 
speak with speak about those issues in ways that um, are compelling or that even as far as I can tell seem to reflect his actual policies or interests. And I guess I wonder, I mean, especially as he becomes, I mean, he is the front runner. And I think like one of the things that would make me, makes me want to vote for him are signs that he's responsive to critique. Um, and I wonder what you think about how he speaks about race or gender, like in addition to the policies, like, is it important how someone talks about it? Cause I think I've, I've also seen people sort of be like, well, Elizabeth Warren talks, speaks well about this, but it doesn't matter if she doesn't have the policy behind it. And that makes sense. And Bill Fletcher um, said in our previous interview that, you know, Sanders had improved a lot and responded to critique on race. So maybe it'd be interesting to know, Chavisa, how you think he's improved or, uh, you know, responded to critique on gender. Sure. Um, it's interesting because I think his, like people who really like him, I listen to his longer speeches sometimes in his rallies. And I think he speaks pretty eloquently about um, sexism and racism and, and his policies and his history um, when he speaks in those longer speeches that are probably the things that mostly his supporters are hearing. I'm realizing while talking to you and some other people and I will say in the last debate, I did find myself gritting my teeth and thinking, what are you doing? Talk about something other than income inequality when you're on a national stage. Um, so I also felt that same frustration with him when he was on, when he gets on a national stage, he sort of does that sometimes. And I hope that he will hear that critique and take a cue from Elizabeth Warren on that and start in, like enumerating what is already put down in his policy and what I know he believes like a little bit better in speech. So I, I just, I agree with that critique of him actually. And I have the same critique of him. So, uh, you know, why doesn't Bernie just make Elizabeth Warren his vice president? I hope he does. <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. That would be amazing. Um, Chibisa, thanks so much for joining us. It's been really great to have you on the show. Listeners, don't miss her collection, Things to Do When You're Goth in the Country, and also 100 Times, A Memoir of Sexism. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. We want to thank the students in the University of Missouri, Kansas City's podcasting practicum for helping us produce this episode. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the fiction nonfiction podcast page is listed under the LitHub radio tab. If you value discussions like this one, God, we beg you every time at the end of the show, and maybe you'll do it this time, take a few seconds to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. Happy reading, and don't forget to vote.